Well, good morning, church. How many of you have heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt? Anybody? I see some hands going up. Well, I've got good news today. It doesn't have to, right? Like, it's an observable fact. I understand the concept. We can see that reality play out in our own lives and in the lives of others on a regular basis. You see, the idea behind familiarity breeds contempt is the more familiar we get with something, the more boring it can become. And then something new and exciting comes along, and, and we're like, wow, that's really cool, and what I have isn't really cool anymore. An example of this that came to mind as I was thinking about this was the car that I currently drive. I got that in 2013. It's a Toyota Avalon, and it's a Toyota Avalon Limited. Okay, now the Limited means that it's like the nicest Toyota Avalon you can buy. Now it's a 2006, all right, it had like 140,000 miles on it. But when I got my hands on that car, I had never had a luxury car. I had never had leather. I had never had heated seats. I didn't even know that cooled seats were a thing until I got my Toyota Avalon Limited. It literally has a little fan and holes in the seats that blow cool air in the summer. It's like really, really nice. It's got not just a moonroof, but a power moonroof, you know, so you just have to push one button one time. You don't have to go to all the effort of pulling that back. Like, there were whistles and bells that I wasn't even aware of, and I just absolutely loved and adored that car. It was, it was such a cool picture of God's provision because we had gotten ourselves to a point where we could pay cash for that car when we got there. We got a phenomenal deal on that car, like three or $4,000 below book. Like, it was just amazing, and I loved it, and I loved taking people for rides in it. Because they would be like, ooh, that's nice. My, my seat is cool right now. Or it's got six-disc in-dash CD player. Now, I'm telling you all this about a car that's now 17 years old, okay? And I still love it, right? But there was a moment when that car got T-boned by somebody who was pulling out and just didn't look. And it was in the shop for a week and a half. And when it was in the shop for a week and a half, I got a brand new Ford Explorer XLT, and I got to drive that for 10 days, and it had CarPlay, and it sat up higher on the road, and it was like literally, I think, 350 miles or something. Like I was one of the first people to drive this thing, and I got to drive it for 10 days, and when I went back to my 2006 Toyota Avalon, that I had absolutely adored 10 days earlier. I was like, well, this car stinks, man. I really, I really need to get a Ford Explorer XLT, brand new. And I started looking at how much they cost, and I started angling, like, well, maybe if we did this, and we did this, and we did this, I could get that. And it got to a point where there was contempt for what I had, when I had absolutely adored it two weeks earlier. And fortunately, I was able to just say, time out, wait a minute. Just two weeks ago, I was thanking God for this car. Don't allow the familiarity to breed contempt. So I get the concept. I've lived the concept. I just don't think it's very biblical. I don't think that the idea that familiarity breeds contempt is biblical. Because when I look at the pages of Scripture, the only thing that I'm told to have contempt for is Satan and his ways. And I'm only supposed to be familiar enough with them to avoid them, to know and to recognize them and then have nothing to do with them. That's really all I see in Scripture that I'm supposed to have contempt for. 
And so I wonder if this reality is something that we need to guard against with intentionality. Because all too often, that's the default, that familiarity breeds contempt. So what if, bear with me here, what if familiarity bred contentment instead? What if familiarity in the hearts and minds and lives of believers bred contentment? Now clearly, I'm not just talking about money and possessions and material things. I know we're in a series titled Kingdom Economics, and we're talking about money and wealth and material things, but what if familiar, familiarity bred contentment, not just with those things, not just with money, not just with our material possessions, not just with the vehicle that we drive or the house that we live in, but what if it bred contentment with people as well? Because I think we can recognize that this happens with people too. It happens in a relationship. It can happen in a marriage. It can happen in all kinds of different things. It can happen with a church. And I, when I look at Scripture, I see that people are exempt from contempt. <laughs> Jesus says that, that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're even supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And love and contempt do not coexist. So what if familiarity could breed contentment? What if it could breed contentment with people? And not just contentment, but also compassion. What if it could breed satisfaction with our stuff, with our lot in life, and the sense that we have enough? What if familiarity could breed contentment in our workplaces and we wouldn't just find ourselves restless and looking at the want ads to see if there's a better deal or if I could make 50 cents an hour more over here or do this over there? What if familiarity could breed contentment in our churches? There are a lot of good reasons to leave churches. There are a lot of good reasons to leave relationships, but too often we leave for the wrong reasons. Too often it's a matter of familiarity breeding contempt and the things that we used to really like about become normal to us and we start to notice the things that we don't like with people or places or friends. And so what if familiarity bred contentment? What if this is what Paul had in mind when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? What if we decided that Jesus Christ and my relationship with him is everything I need? And when I feel disrespected or I feel unappreciated or I feel like I'm not getting the affection that I would like in this relationship, I can draw that need from Jesus and be content in Him and what He has for me. You see, the Amplified Version of Philippians 4.13 says that I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency, that Christ in me can make me sufficient, whether that's relationships or material possessions. In our view today, obviously, as we move into week three of Kingdom Economics, we're looking at money, and we're looking at material possessions, and we're looking at those things. And today, we're going to focus on some habits, right? We've talked about these four H's of financial health or financial wisdom, the four H's being the heart, the health, the habits. And does anybody know what the fourth one is? I didn't put it in my notes. It's on the sheet somewhere. We'll talk about that next week. Heart health habits. Dang it. I'll look it up between services. Second service will benefit from this. So thank you for your patience. There's four. We'll talk about one next week. But I'll tell you what's foundational to all four. 
is this stewardship mindset and the notion of contentment. The stewardship mindset says it's all God's. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's, everything in it, the world and everyone in it. I and all my stuff ultimately belong to God. And contentment. What I have is enough. I can be satisfied with what I have. These are foundational to kingdom economics. They undergird everything that we'll talk about today. And these five biblical principles, you've got a note card. It's on the seats around you. If you don't have one on your seat, there should be one close to you. Check the seat in front of you. Check the seat behind you. Check the seats uh, down the road. But these are going to be sort of our guide map today. And they loosely follow last week's five competing priorities for our money, when we talked about health and we talked about examining today's reality and that there are these simultaneously competing priorities, we see that these overlay with that fairly well. And so these five principles for healthy finances, they're also five biblical principles that Scripture teaches to each of these. And we'll see examples from Scripture that inform us on the kingdom economics in each of these areas. So the first one is that one in the middle. It's that puzzle piece right in the middle. You have to spend less than you earn in order to have healthy finances. You have to spend less than you earn. Now, I know the graphic has certain scriptures referenced, and you might want to jot down some of the scriptures that we talk about today. You can look these ones up. They will inform your understanding of spending less than you earn. But when I looked at that point, I thought Proverbs 21, verses 17 and 20, really speak to this idea. Because in Proverbs, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon says, He who loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. And he contrasts that just a few verses later by saying, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. You see, the foolish spend everything they make. And now today they can spend even more than they make through consumer credit and, and these other things. We can borrow in order to feed our appetites, and we can end up spending more in a year or several years in a row than we make. Our government does not set a good example for us in this regard. They routinely spend more than they make, and they're not healthy financially. And this one is central. It's key to all the others. It's why it's in the middle. It's why it has a prong that goes into each of the other four. And it's why we're starting there. Because if you don't do this, if you do not spend less than you make, you will never be healthy financially. It's at the center of the puzzle for a reason. If you don't do this, if you don't spend less than you earn, you can't do the others. You just can't. I mean, when our appetites exceed our income, we have unhealthy finances. And that's what Solomon is saying in Proverbs 21. And so I hate to break it to you, but you need the dreaded B word. Does everybody know what I'm talking about when I say the dreaded B word in regards to finances? It's a budget. Some of you flinched when you heard me say it. No, don't say that. We talk about budgets in premarital counseling, and it is almost always the case that a spender marries a saver. You see, God knew that we didn't need two spenders. That's a nightmare. We didn't need two savers. We need one of each. We need to complement each other in that. And yet over and over in premarital counseling, we have this tool that we take that helps assess where people are on that, and we see a spender marrying a saver, and they have to come together on the area of a budget. You see, a budget, or if you cannot get your mind around the dreaded B word, call it a spending plan, right? That's really what it is. It can be very helpful to think of it that way. 
that it's a spending plan. It's a plan for how you're going to spend less than you earn. Now, this next slide, I've got a picture of the water riser room that is in between the two locker rooms here at Linwood. And you see pipes coming in out of the floor, and then they go through all this series of things that help make sure there's pressure for the, the sprinkler system if there's a fire and those types of things. And there's pipes that go out the end because Linwood has a plumbing plan. We don't just have a hole in the floor and water comes out of that hole and floods the entire building constantly. That's kind of how some people's finances are. They don't have a spending plan to direct where they want their money to go. You see, we have a plumbing plan because we want to direct where we want the water to go. And we have lived within a budget in our house because we want to make sure that the money that comes in doesn't just flutter away all over the place. We want to direct it where we want it to go. Now, nobody would ever have a home or a building without a plumbing plan. And yet a lot of people go through life with income coming in, but no plan for that income. And if there's no plan, failing to plan often turns into planning to fail. We must direct income where we want it to go, not where the billion-dollar marketing industry wants it to go. Not where our appetites want, us, want it to go in the moment. We have to have a plan. We have to think ahead. And so when you do a spending plan, if you find that you have more going out than you have coming in, you have two options. The first is you can earn more. The second is you can spend less. And that's where contentment might come in. Like maybe we need to cut the cable for a while. Maybe we need to live like no one else and turn off some of these monthly expenses so that we can get our finances under wraps. Maybe we need to make some tough decisions to spend less, to be content with what we have. In Proverbs 21, still in that same chapter, verse 25 and 26, talk about these two options. The first is working more. You see, maybe you don't make, you don't, you're spending more than you bring in because you're not working very hard or you're not working very much. And the sluggard's craving will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. All day long, he craves for more. But the righteous give without sparing. You see, biblical wisdom would say, work hard. Do everything as unto the Lord, Colossians 3 says. Be content with what you have and then... Give generously. The righteous give without sparing. That leads us to the next one. First, we spend less than we earn. Second, we give generously. And perhaps the best passage in the New Testament on giving generously is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. He says, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. There's a straight line between what we sow and what we reap. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it referred to in the New Testament. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity. You need to sow, uh, you know, uh, thousands of dollars into Linwood so that God will give you thousands of dollars later. I am not that kind of preacher, and that is not what I believe, but there is a biblical principle. And when we sow generously with our time and our talents and our treasures, Scripture tells us we will reap generously in those areas. Therefore, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know what my biggest concern with a four-week series on stewardship and kingdom economics is that people will think, oh, the church just wants my money. Because you hear that all the time. And so we've been trying to be really clear on that. When we receive an offering at the end of this service, it's not twisting your arm. It's not begging for money, it's an opportunity to continue worshiping God through the giving of our finances, that we would do that not reluctantly or under compulsion, but cheerfully. 
And then it says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. That's an amazing little scripture right there, amazing verse of scripture. For as it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That's what God has done for us. He's been incredibly generous with us. It's all his, and he's given us so much to enjoy. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That God would supply and increase and enlarge the harvest, not only of our finances, but of our righteousness. And then he says, you will be made rich in every way, so that, circle so that, if you're, if you're one of these people that's bold enough to write in your Bible, circle the so that there in 2 Corinthians 9-11. You'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Have you ever experienced that? Where your generosity resulted in thanksgiving to God? When you've had an opportunity to help somebody, to bless somebody's life just in the moment, and they say, oh, wow, thank you so much. And you can say, oh, please, thank God. He's the one that provided it for me, and he's the one that gave me a heart to be generous to you. And it's my honor and my privilege. Just thank God for this. It came to me from him. I'm giving it to you because of him. And so that's why. Last week, we talked about tithing is the minimum biblical standard. We tithe to our local church so that the the work of that ministry can be done. And then we give offerings above that. It's tithes and offerings. And so wherever you are on this continuum, if you're at nothing right now, I just want to encourage you to take the step to give something. Give something. And if you're giving something sort of sporadically, take the next step to schedule it to make it a repeating gift, a recurring gift, to set a percentage and to work towards that tithe. If you've been tithing for some time and you've been scheduled for some time, keep growing into sacrificial giving and be cheerful at every step along the way. To the church, to kingdom ministries, to family and friends, to others that God lays in your your path. I find it interesting that Sir John Templeton, have you heard of Sir John Templeton? Sir John Templeton is the Templeton part in Franklin Templeton Investments. He's one of the finest investment minds in the history of the world. He was the one that sort of pioneered the idea of mutual funds, where instead of picking one or two stocks at a time and putting all your eggs in that basket, you would hire a fund manager who would research and select those stocks, and you would buy shares of that fund. So he pioneered this, and he was once asked in front of a group of over 6,500 international investors what was the best investment he had ever made, and he made a lot of good ones. Without pause, he told them that it was tithing to his local church. Now, he gave over a billion dollars to charity during his life. He's one of the world's greatest philanthropists. And at his death, he left billions more to some foundations that he had set up to continue the work that he had been doing. And he said that the greatest investment he had ever made was tithing to his local church, giving generously on top of that. So the first thing that we do is we spend less than we earn, then we give generously. The third one is we avoid the use of debt. We avoid it like the plague. We don't just say, oh, it sure would be nice if I didn't have to. We choose not to do what the world does. In this regard, we avoid the use of debt as much as possible because last week we talked about debt always presumes upon the future, and we're not certain that we're going to be able to pay that back. And Scripture says something interesting about those who don't pay back. Psalm 37, 21 says, The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous 
give generously. That points us back. The righteous have the ability to give generously. Now, there's no shame in this regard. If you have amassed some debt, then I'm just hoping this is where we draw a line in the sand and we say no new debt. And we move forward and we make a plan. And there are people who will help you with that plan. We've had one connection get made already from somebody that said on their connection card, I would mentor somebody financially. And somebody else said, I would really like a financial mentor. We have a couple of others that said they would be willing to mentor somebody financially, even a couple that said, if there's a couple that's starting out and they would like to be mentored financially, we would meet with them as a couple and help them set up a budget and share the wisdom and resources that we've amassed over the years with them in this regard. Proverbs 22.7 gives us another reason. We talked about this last week, that the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. That's why we avoid debt, especially on depreciating assets like vehicles and consumer debt and those types of things. A case can be made to use debt to purchase a home that's going to appreciate over time instead of sending rent out month after month, year after year. A case can be made for that. But something that's going to go down in value and you're going to borrow today's dollars and have to pay them back at higher interest rates in the future, it just doesn't make sense. And George Camel, one of the speakers for Dave Ramsey, says, stop paying for the past and start building for the future. That's why we avoid the use of debt, because it's not building for the future. And we're still paying for the past. We're paying for an experience that we had. We're paying for a thing that we did. With today's dollars, instead of building for the future, that leads us into our next one. We spend less than we earn, we give generously, we avoid the use of debt, and then we plan for financial margin. We plan for financial margin. Ecclesiastes 5, 10, and 11 says, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except a feast? his eyes on them. This is, again, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, saying there's value in financial margin. Proverbs 30, 7 through 9. This is Agur. This isn't Solomon. Agur, we're not quite sure who Agur is, but man, he had some things figured out. And he has this powerful prayer that I think would be a wise prayer for many of us to pray on a regular basis in regards to finances and kingdom economics. He says, two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Did you know this is the only prayer in the book of Proverbs? That was an interesting little tidbit for me, and it has to do with finances. And Agur says, keep falsehood and lies far from me, and the second one is the one we're going to focus on, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. I remember I had a friend who married into a very, 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 very wealthy family. We're not just talking, you know, millionaires. We're talking hundreds of millions, millionaires. And he realized a few years in, he's like, we don't need God. I needed God a whole lot more before I had married into this family than I do now. Because there was so much wealth and so much abundance. It was kind of like the one side that Agur is praying against. And vice versa, that I would become poor and steal if we're not wise and we use debt too much and we spend more than we make and we are not generous towards others, then there's, there's no margin in our lives. There's no financial margin. And margin is the difference between what you earn and what you spend. So when we are spending less than we earn, we are building margin into our finances. It's the difference between what we earn and what we spend. 
And we learn to cultivate contentment and to build margin into our lives. You see, more is not the answer. Margin is the answer when it comes to finances. It's not more. They give people more, and they spend it as foolishly as they spent the less that they had, and they end up in greater financial trouble. There's documentaries that have been done on lottery winners, people that inherit or bring in vast sums of money, and they end up bankrupt four years later or five years later. When we lived in West Virginia, there was this story of this guy who had won the Powerball, the big one, had won dozens of millions of dollars and blew through it in about three and a half years and ended up bankrupt. And you say, so more is not the answer. Margin is the answer. And if you have contentment with a little, you'll have contentment with a lot. We're going to talk more about margin next week and setting long-term goals next week. Today, we're just kind of establishing that this, these are habits these are five biblical principles, five habits that you can establish in your life that will lead you to financial success. The last one here is to set long-term goals. I love 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. I think it's a word to America if there is one. There's so much wealth and so much abundance in America. And in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's America. Like, even the people that are on welfare in America are rich by the world's standard. If you walked into Linwood Church today with change in your pocket, you're in about the top 15% globally. Do you realize that? Like, so many people are living on $2 a day or less. And so we are rich in this present age. And we're commanded to not be arrogant or to put our hope in that wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put it in God. And then he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. That kind of points us back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that we would be made rich in every way so that we can be generous on every occasion, and through us our generosity would result in thanksgiving to God. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. There is a life that is truly life, and it is not just a big banking account. The life that is truly life is when we spend less than we earn, we give generously, we avoid the use of debt, we set long-term goals, we plan for financial margin, and we invest into the kingdom more and more and more. So the question becomes, what do you you want your impact to be? What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want your impact on this world to be in regards to finances? Is it more stuff for you or more impact for the world? Is it a bigger house? A nicer car? Or is it maybe to build an orphanage overseas for the people that literally have nothing? Like, I think this is where the kingdom mindset needs to reemerge after we've done everything else. Because if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Don't just go with the flow of culture because culture says, have it your way right away as much as possible. But the kingdom is countercultural, the kingdom goes against that. It says it's not about you. Even the spiritual gifts that God gives us are not just for us. They're for the body. They're for the community. They're for the global kingdom around the world. And so when Paul writes to Timothy and tells Timothy, tell your church to be rich in good deeds, that's because 
there were good deeds that were created in advance for each of us to do. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we're God's workmanship, his masterpiece in some translations. That we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's good works with your name on them. Are we doing them? Are we doing our good works that God prepared in advance for us to do? And so our bottom line as we bring this to a close is that financial health is a lifestyle. These habits speak about a lifestyle. Financial health is a lifestyle. And it's not about do more and try harder. It might be about surrender more and put your hand in the hands of God and respond to the gospel with an open heart and empty hands. Because financial health is a lifestyle. You can't have the life of financial health or financial wisdom or financial maturity without the lifestyle. These habits speak to a lifestyle. Now, I have a friend who's a runner. He's like a real runner. He's not an occasional jogger, right? He's one of these guys that can run a sub-six mile. Lots of them, like dozens in a row. He can go do a whole marathon of sub-six miles. Now, I ran for a while in my mid-30s. I wanted to run a sub-six mile. I never quite got there. One day I was really, really mad about a church meeting that went off the rails, and I ran the fastest mile I had ever run, and it was about six minutes and 15 seconds. I still didn't get there, even when I was mad, like mad, mad. That wasn't here, by the way. I just want to clear this up. (laughs) You see, I wanted to run a sub-six mile, just one, not dozens in a row, but I didn't want the lifestyle of somebody who runs dozens of sub-six miles in a row. I didn't want to train that hard. I didn't want to eat. This guy's crazy, the things that he eats and doesn't eat. Like, he never eats sugar, ever. Like, never eats sugar. Like, you're crazy. I'm not doing that. (laughs) I'm doing good on the sugar, by the way, but I'm not there. And the time. You know how much time it takes to train for a marathon? Hours and hours and hours. So I wanted to do what he did. I just didn't want the lifestyle that went with it. I never developed the habits of a real runner. On a more spiritual, hopefully you're connecting the dots here, on a more spiritual uh, example, I actually used to envy people with a really rich prayer life. (laughs) I know, right? I was envying people for their prayer life, right? I, I just... When I wrote that sentence, I'm like, yeah, that's messed up. I wanted what they had more than I wanted the lifestyle that leads to a really rich prayer life. And yet over time, I started to experiment and and spend more time in prayer and spend more time when there was a 24 hours of prayer at my church in Casper, I would go to it. And it was hard to do a half hour at first, and then it was like an hour, and then it was like, I could sign up for an hour or two. And then it was like, I didn't want to leave. And I started to spend time in prayer on a regular basis in my daily life, in a prayer journal, and I would review that prayer journal, and those were worshipful experiences, seeing that God had led me to certain insights and understandings and conclusions, and I was growing in this conversational prayer life with God, and eventually I had like that prayer life that I had wanted, because I had the lifestyle that led to it. And the same is true with our finances. we got a 24 hours of prayer coming up. We'd, we'd love for you to take that next step, whatever that next step may be. It's this Friday and Saturday. 
And we have opportunities to grow in financial health and maturity and wisdom. Do you want that? Do you want it enough to make the change? Is there a habit that needs to change? That's what this card is for. The QR code will take you to a resource, a website that's packed with resources. It's got all four H's, not just the first three. You can take a self-assessment. You can get all kinds of insight from Ron Blue and the phenomenal team and the resources that they've put together there. What habit do you need to adopt or develop or grow in your financial life? And if you're not going to cover off the ball on all five, would you come alongside somebody who's not? And would you help them out? Maybe you write it on a card this week. I would mentor somebody. Maybe you're on the other side of this. You really need a financial mentor. You need somebody to come alongside you in the area of finances. And you could, you could say, I would like that. And we'll help play matchmaker on that. But however you choose to respond, I just hope we'll all respond in faith. We'll all say, God, what is mine to do with what you have shared with me today? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that financial wisdom is available to us through your word. We're so thankful that you have blessed each and every one of us immeasurably, more than we can even hope to understand. So many things, Lord, that we could say. May we first say thank you. And then may we ask, what do you want me to do with what I have heard, with what you have whispered in our ears, with what your spirit is leading us to right now? May we respond in faith to you. May we respond in surrender. May we respond wholeheartedly and open-handedly to whatever your spirit may be leading us to. Because, Lord, we need you wherever we are, financially, wherever we are, in the stewardship of our lives, our talents, our treasures, our time, we need you. And so may we respond in faith to what your spirit says now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.